Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I have been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. Seems like yesterday, but the days are adding up to years, and uh, life is good. And uh, the more I do this, the more I love it. Um, hosting this podcast is a, such an important part of my life and my recovery. It has introduced me to so many people from all around the world, and I'm always amazed at the way that recovery brings us together from all walks of life and from all locations. And um, it's a real honor and privilege to be part of that. One of my goals this year was to get some more male voices on this show because in my little corner of Alberta, my recovery circles are very small and uh, I don't actually get to meet a whole lot of men that are in recovery and so I have put the word out that we need some more male voices on this show and guess what? Um, when you ask, uh, things get delivered. And so today I am very pleased to introduce you to today's guest. His name is John, and John comes to us from the 12-step tradition of recovery, and he has been sober since 1989, also the year I got married. And my husband likes to say it feels like 30 seconds instead of 30 years, only sometimes it's like 30 seconds underwater <laughs> instead of not. <laughs> anyway, uh, John, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I'm really glad to have you here. Glad to be here. I'm a Bubble Hour fan. Uh, in fact, I <laughs> uh, just got through listening to one of your last uh, episodes with, with uh, Renee, 90 Days, uh, and I yeah. wish that I sounded that good when I was 90 Days sober. I really appreciated her vulnerability and uh, how she explained her story and uh, uh, it moved me it was very good yeah thank you I, I i was really i was really moved by her willingness to be vulnerable to help others and um you know we if if you read Brene brown at all she she aligns the words mm-hmm. courage and vulnerability it takes it, we feel like we're weak when we're vulnerable like that but it's really our, our most brave and in Renee's case, it was very generous of her. So I'm glad you heard that. And, okay, here we go. Yeah. We were just saying before we came to air that the beauty of this show is that we hear ourselves in other stories, no matter how different they are. And you have you have decades of sobriety, and yet you could uh, find meaning in hearing from someone with weeks of sobriety. So that is pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, very much so. And I will say one other thing before we get started, and that is next time you go to that – cabin out on that kayak i want to be invited i want to bring me and my family uh if you don't mind uh, that sounds like a great time <laughs> uh, it's pretty fun i'll tell you uh the, it's a it's a long drive for you though <laughs> yeah and and i don't it's know how Alberta. you didn't uh I, I don't know how you didn't get your equipment wet i could hear that water kind of splashing around and uh but you did a very good job you kept it tucked <laughs> in your jacket or whatever you did well, I put it in a zippy bag, a sandwich bag, inside my life jacket and prayed. And you know what? If you go to my blog, I even then I got real cocky, and I held it in my teeth, and I took video while I was kayaking. So if you go to Unpickled Blog, you can find actual <laughs> videos of the same day. <laughs> so Man, uh, never a dull moment. <laughs> Well, okay, that's enough about that's enough about the things I do out there. Tell us about you, John. 
Oh, gosh, you know, it's always like, you know, where do you start? So, uh, like you said, um, I've been sober since May 29th, uh, 1989. Uh, And this and I don't say that, you know, I'll have people come up to me at work sometime and say, hey, listen, that is fantastic. You made a great presentation or, you know, you've done very well, you know, and that was quite an accomplishment. And I can be kind of a little bit proud of that, if you will. Uh, but when I say I've been sober since a particular date, I'm not I guarantee you that it's not bragging. In fact, I feel a little uh, uncomfortable even saying it. You know, I've been sober for a while, but it is strictly by the grace of God. And I watch people come in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous all the time. I don't know why God actually picked me up, uh, picked me, John M., up by the scruff of the neck and... um, uh, uh, gave me this gift, uh, uh, but I keep trying my best to carry it on and give it to others if I can. But uh, uh, yeah, if I make it to this May, it will be uh, 30 years in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Just save everybody a little math there. Um, in fact, I know a guy who picked up his 30 uh, year chip and he said, Hey, we finally made it to the triple X. So <laughs> if I can get to the triple X, I'm gonna, I'll, be, uh, I'll be excited. So. Does it have, um, like, sparkles on it? or? Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet, so I'll, I'll have to check it out. I didn't ask him to look at his. Uh, but uh, uh, where do I say? Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, I, my, my favorite drinking song uh, was, uh, and still is one of my favorite songs ever, was uh, Desperado by the Eagles. Uh, Don Henley, if you heard him sing that song, uh, oh, yeah. in fact, there's a side, a side note to where I met him in an elevator once. I say, I say, I met him. I, I recognized him in an elevator. It was just me and him. But <laughs> that's a whole different story, and I won't tell you about that conversation. But my favorite drinking song was uh, Desperado. Uh, that was kind of me. I uh, grew up an only child with my mom, uh, and uh, I just did a lot of things by myself. And uh, through in uh, throughout that experience, you know, I, I when I, I used to get just lit, lit like a Christmas tree, and then I would get in my car. I had a little Honda CRX at the time, and uh, I would drive that car down the highway. I would turn up Desperado to the nth degree. I would drink tequila. That was kind of my thing. I like Cuervo. I would drink that and. Um, I would bawl my eyes out going 70 miles an hour, and that is not a way that is suggested by the Department of Public Transportation in order to drive your vehicle down the road. Uh, but uh, I did. I I absolutely love that song. And uh, um, I grew up, um, uh, and, uh, you know, we, we talked about this beforehand. You mentioned it would be a long drive for the listeners. I, I don't know if you mentioned, but I am from uh, – the Dallas, Texas area. I have primarily lived here my entire life. Uh, you know, I, I moved around to different places, but I always seem to come back to uh, Dallas and uh, I grew up with my mom. My mom and my dad met when they were, oh, they were in, um, my mom was uh, in Scotland and my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, they met uh, over there in Scotland, uh, came back over here to the States. I was actually born 
in the great state of Maine, Bangor, Maine, for those of you who know where that <laughs> area is. And in fact, it's close to Canada, right? So, sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so I was born in Maine and uh, basically lived my entire life. My parents got divorced when I was uh, six years old, and then I grew up with my mom from there. Uh, you know, and I, I got really into the drugs and alcohol um, pretty heavy when I turned uh, uh, 16, 17. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll never forget the first party that I went to. Um, and uh, I experienced alcohol. It was there. I started drinking. I couldn't stop drinking. I got blasted. Didn't even have my driver's license. I didn't have a car, but I was really wanting to drive people home. Uh, I don't know what it is about alcoholics and cars, but they seem to be attracted to each other, and that is not a healthy thing. But I really wanted to take everybody home that night, and uh, uh, fortunately, nobody let me. Um, but uh, after that night, I, des- I decided that I was going to uh, uh, continue my career in alcoholism, so to speak. Uh, it actually worked out uh, very well for me. You know, there's a, uh, there's a line in the big book that says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. That was me. I liked the effect produced by alcohol. It took me to another place, another time. It took me out of reality. It took me into some delusional place where I could live for a short period of time. And in the end, though, after 10 years of that, that stopped working. Um, and, it, in fact, I was, a, I, was at, uh, I was at my job one day. Uh, we were at the office down here in Dallas, and uh, I went over to get some. And this was after I had gotten sober. I was probably four or five years sober at this point. I went over to the coffee machine and uh, there's a lady, I'll never forget her, her name's Allison. She was looking at me uh, getting a cup of coffee at the office and she said um, are you, uh, so do you like uh, caffeinated or decaffeinated coffee? And I looked at her and I said, <laughs> you know I drink coffee essentially because I like the effect produced by caffeine. You know, it's just how my mind works. And so uh, I've always been that way. I don't understand uh, non alcoholic beer, I don't understand decaffeinated coffee. And um, so that's, that's, you know, kind of how it works for me. There's an old joke in AA that says, uh, how's it go? Um, about the two guys that, uh, are at the funeral. They go to a funeral, and uh, one looks at the other, and he says, uh, "Well, how did uh, so? How did uh, how the guy die?" And the other guy looks back at him. And he says, "Oh, he died of alcoholism. It's kind of sad." He goes, "Oh, alcoholism." He said, "Did he ever go to AA?" He said, oh, "No, no, no. He wasn't that bad." Right. <laughs> and the point being there <laughs> that I was always, always thinking. If I could just get through next July, if I could just get through next August, if I could just get through Christmas, um, if I could get through my birthday, um, if I could get through New Year's Eve, um, I was always pushing it out. And to me, I was never quite that bad. Um, and the reality is, you know, I was, 
I was very bad. I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing well at all. And you know, uh, I mainly talk about alcohol just because I like to respect uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous at least the singleness or purpose where uh, AA is concerned, uh, alcohol. But that's what I always talk about in the rooms. But you know, we're not. You know, we're doing a podcast here, and uh, and uh, so I can tell you that uh, at the time. I mean, I, I and I think really what amped up my entree into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous was all the uh, all the drugs I did. I, the only thing that I did not do was put a needle in my arm, and the only reason I didn't do that, I'm sure, is because basically that was never presented to me. Uh, I'm sure if somebody on the right night at the right time had presented that to me, uh, that probably would have happened. But for whatever reason, it never did. I never came across that. So, so I was doing a lot of things there. Uh, I really was just on a tear. I was also really, I was a, a vandal and I was a thief. I, I don't know what it was, but I just liked to steal things. I liked to vandalize things um it was just something that for whatever reason i can't really explain it right brought me um uh, a lot of joy at that time uh you know now looking back on it i can see i was probably just a uh, an angry young man if you will uh, and trying to get that out of my system and that was the way i was acting out but at the time it just seemed like the way to live if you will so that was there's all kinds of stories and such that go around that, but you know I'm going to talk about recovery a little bit. Um, getting into AA, you know, I knew that the second step was I we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, coming to believe for me was um, had I, I heard somebody say this how they put it they said. Um, I say to God, you show me, God, and then I will believe. But in essence, really, how it should be and how God um, processes things, at least in my mind, is you believe and then I will show you. And so I had it backwards. Um, I, I, I had to believe in something greater than myself. And in the big book, it's real clear. It says, right, do I now believe or am I willing to believe? And this is in We Agnostics, just in case you want to look it up, but whoever's listening. Uh, do I now believe or am I willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? And it says if we can answer yes to that question, we can move on with the process. And so I, you know, I got to that point with my sponsor. By the way, I will say this. My first meeting was in 1986. My sobriety date is in 1989. Um, obviously, I had a few years of trial and error there. Uh, and there's nothing worse, nothing worse than having a belly full of booze and a head full of AA. And for those of you who have ever experienced that, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, it's absolutely horrible, especially when you see people out in public that you know that are in Alcoholics Anonymous, 
and your lit, oh, it just makes it even worse. But the other thing about the second step that I came to believe in, and, and I was taught in AA, is, you know, it says restore us to sanity. A lot of people do not like that term, sanity, if you will. And by that, I mean they say, you know, well, I'm not really insane, you know, they're kind of uh, uh, insulting my senses here, you know. But if I went back and I look at it, and the book is real clear when I say the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it is real clear about what, quote, sanity means. It means if you sit down in front of me a bottle of tequila and you sit down in front of me a bottle of water, if I am able to go and pick up that bottle of water, well, I have been restored to sanity. So it's not like, and, and that's what people talk about when they say we have recovered. They say we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind. In other words, I had no, uh, no defense against that first drink for my entire life. And then getting into AA, I was able to grab some sort of I was able to grab hold of a higher power that can solve that problem for me, and uh, and I'm so so grateful for that. When I think about the third step, there's if you go to page 63 in Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, it will tell you there is a pr- or there is a prayer there, and it says the wording is optional, and and I completely get that, um, but I can tell you I did a six uh, a third step prayer with a sponsee yesterday. And we got down on our knees, and we said the third step prayer. And the third step prayer says, in essence, it says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Now, I know there's a lot of people, they don't like the language involved with that. And and like it says, the, the, the language is optional. But when I think about that, God, I offer myself to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. I think about, here I am, God. You can have my health issues. Here I am, God. You can have my relationship issues. Here I am, God. You can have my job issues. Uh, You can have my family issues. Here I am. I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. And the second part of that says relieve me of the bondage of self. Because if I'm always, Gene, looking at me, and I'm constantly thinking about myself, me, 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 I, 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 and, and, and how things are going for me today. I, I, it is a bondage, right? So I have to get out of myself and be able to look at you sometime, some way, and I just don't do that automatically. It takes a lot of work. But when I get out of me and I'm able to look at you, I'm in a much better place. And then the third line in there says, um, how's it go? Take away my difficulties, dear God, take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power and thy love and thy way of life. In other words, Father, please take this away from me so that I can be an example, so that I can... Uh, show others that this thing works, that your power actually works in other people's lives. Please, God, be with me on that path and take away this so that I can be 
uh, a testimony, if you will, to other people. And so I did that third step prayer with my sponsor on my knees and him on his knees as well. That was a little weird, holding another guy's hand and, you know, getting on our knees in an Al-Anon room down here in, a, in a, down in Texas. Uh, you know, they had the setup. It was the AA meeting in one place and an Al-Anon re- meeting next to it. It was a smaller room. We were just always going there. And so I did that entire prayer. And he said to me after that, he said, listen, just like it says in the book, and it says this in the big book, Gene, and you probably know this, and a lot of your listeners probably know this, but I'm going to say it anyway, and that is, it says, even though our decision, that third step prayer, was a vital and crucial one, it was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to be rid of the things that have been blocking us in the past. And it's basically describing the four-step. It's just like, uh, you know, and when you have people that, including myself when I was a little kid a couple of times, walk down the aisle and give your life to another higher, to a higher power, um, if I don't follow it up with some sort of action, Uh, If I don't leap into something right after that, some sort of plan, um, it's really almost fruitless. Um, And that's what I love about the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, for a a guy like me, a a dumbed-down guy like me, it gave me 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. It gave me steps in order and it gave me a program, and it gave me a, a manual, if you will, to navigate this thing called life. Um, so I, I want, you know, I, I could talk all about my experience with a four-step and fifth-step, uh, but I want to, I want to hop ahead a little bit here um, to the eighth and ninth step um, because it's a very, very important part. Of my story, um, I've already mentioned that I grew up with my mother, uh, and my mother was from Scotland. She had an eighth grade education. She came over here. My parents were divorced when I was, uh, like I said, when I was uh, six years old. And um, God bless her. She did the best she could with what she had. But as I continued to get older and I got into my teenage years, it became very apparent that she had several mental illnesses, actually. One mental illness that she had was anorexia, uh, and uh, she had it uh, really to the nth degree. Um, And uh, in other words, uh, I mean, she would get down in her into the 70s, uh, 70 pounds and such, so she had... She had uh, uh, anorexia. She also had what you would call, and by the way, it's a popular term nowadays. It's called obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD, right? And everybody talks about having it, even myself. But she truly had, and, and, you know, nobody talked about this when I was a kid. I didn't know what OCD was. But if she turned on or turned off the gas or locked the door, she'd have to go to that knob or that door or whatever and she'd have to check it 50, 60 times over, right? She'd check, 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 check. 
and I knew something was wrong, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, by the way. I mean, it was that for everything. Uh, we never, I never had friends over to the house. It was not anything that I was uh, – uh, it, it was just an embarrassing place for me as a child to live. Um, she also had schizophrenia or, or I, I don't know exactly what it was. She would hear words going through her head, words like – Oh, uh, uh, death. Uh, she'd hear death, 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 just rocking through her head, and she couldn't stop the words. We would sit down at uh, dinner or whatever and uh, talk about her her uh, thoughts of suicide throughout that day. And so that was just typical of what I was growing up with. And, and once again, this is not this is I just want to say that I know my mom was doing the best she could with what she had uh, but you can imagine me as a teenager in a situation like that and it turns out I'm alcoholic it was just a perfect mix for me to take off go live my life outside of the house for the most part you know she would leave many times when I say leave she would go to other states and you know, leave me with friends, and one time they threw me out on the porch, and, um, you know, they said, you have to come get him, and, you know, I'm standing out there at 17 years old with no place to live, and it would just be embarrassing situations like that time after time, and in fact, my my uh, friends would tell me they'd see my mom walking down the street. She She kind of became like a bag lady, if you will, without... She had a place many times to go back to 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 stay in an apartment, and she had jet black hair. She wore black clothes, and she was very very skinny. Uh, and she would shave her head like a number two type razor, and so she was very recognizable. So I got sober. Went to my sponsor, and I said, I want to go, and I want to make amends to my mother. And he said. It's okay, but I want you to go, please keep your side of the street clean. And so I went to the place where I knew that she walked the streets, and I found her. Uh, It took me a while to find her, but I knew where she hung out, if you will. I saw her on the street. I walked up behind her, and I said, hey, Mom, it's me. And by the way, this time I'm probably like six months over, something like that. And she turned around. She didn't recognize me at first. And finally, she recognized me. She said, I hate you. Get out of my life. I never want to see you again. She turned on her heels, and she walked away from me. And so I went back to my sponsor. He was concerned I was going to drink, Um, didn't even think of it. Um, And uh, we decided that she was emotionally unavailable, and I just needed to go another way. And so I did that. I went on my way. I wasn't going to put myself back in harm's way for that type of situation. And I went to, I went back to school. I went back into school and I got a degree. You know, a lot of us do that sort of thing. And uh, um, this was actually now like two and a half years later. And I'm wrapping this up in a, you know, very neat ball here. There were many twists and turns along the way, but... (laughs) Life is was, so orderly, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I wish. So I'm driving down the highway one day, and I had just gotten my announcements that I was going to graduate from college and I was going to send them out to people. And nobody on my side of the family had ever graduated from from college. 
uh, it just, you know, we didn't talk about it. It was just uh, kind of a big deal. And so something came to me, one of those little intuitive thoughts, and I said to myself, I'm going to go find Mom. And I got off the street, and I went over to that same place where I knew that she walked around, and all the people in the stores knew her around there. Uh, and they said, uh, you know, that's funny. We hadn't seen your mom in a couple of weeks. She's always down here walking around. You may want to check it out. So I called uh, some. I called the hospital. I called the. There's a there's a place called Parkland Hospital. It's actually where JFK died. For people who know that, it's a it's a the city hospital, if you will. I called down there, and. Um, Got a hold of them, and I asked if my mom was there, and they said, well, we can't for confidentiality reasons say one way or another, but they called me back in like three weeks, and they said, we have confirmed that your mom, I say three weeks, I think it was more like a week or two, but nonetheless, they they called me back, and they said, uh, we can confirm your mom is here. She has let us know that it's okay to tell you that, and they said, would you like to come see her, and I said, I think I would. And so a few days later, I went down there, and I don't know if you've ever seen um, um, what's it called, uh, Jack Nicholson's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, mm-hmm. But I walked in to this uh, gated area, and uh, I saw her, and she was 78 pounds. We sat down at the dinner table. Um, she looked over at the window, talked about how many times she has thought about throwing herself off that window, out of that window. And uh, and I looked at her and I said, hey, listen, Mom, I don't know what it is with you, um, but it isn't with me anymore. And I want you to be happy. And I want you to be joyous. And I want you to be free. I don't know how you're going to get there, but if I can help, I'll try as time moves on here. And I can tell you, Gene, as I walked out that institution and that big iron door clanged behind me uh, and I heard that bolt lock, I knew that a piece of me had floated away. And because of that experience, I was not going to be the same again. I didn't know where mom was going to end up. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew that I had changed because of it. Fast forward a few weeks later, a couple months later. By the way, when they were in there, she had been deemed both a threat to herself and to society. That's why they had locked her up. And I found out later they had um, gathered uh, students and classes around her to study her for the various different abnormalities, uh, diagnoses, whatever it is that she had, and she was kind of a a guinea pig, if you will, for the class, you know, that's what they do, and, you know, they're giving you free treatment, and uh, and I get it, but, um, so they got her on some medicine, they got her living with somebody, I I told them, no, I'm sorry, I can't do it right now, it's just too much for me, right, I, I, I can't handle this. They got her living with somebody outside, and slowly and surely, I swear to God, she started to change. Um, we started to talk about her relationship with God. And I used to, this is the weird thing, I used to go into those uh, 
to Walgreens or whatever the drugstores are, and I would look for a Mother's Day card, and none of them fit, absolutely none of them. I just wanted a blank card to send her over say, Happy Mother's Day, here you are. But all of a sudden, as the years went on, uh, every single one of those Mother Day, Mother's Day cards were appropriate. Mm. Same mother, same son. Something happened. And when she looked at me, when I told her about being happy, joyous, and free in that, in that lockup, she looked at me and she said, there's something different about you. She had never said that to me before in my life at all. She said, is it this God of your understanding? She didn't say God of your understanding. She just said, is it this God you talk about? And I said, yeah, Mom, I believe it is. And so we went on like that for about 10 years, actually, and actually formed a good relationship. Then one night I got a call from her, and she said, I'm having these horrible stomach pains. Can you come by and get me? I was... I was somebody that she depended upon now. We had a good relationship, and I took her down to the hospital. She was still eccentric, believe me, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> she, you know, she, but she wasn't 78 pounds anymore. She was eating, you know, fairly healthy, and she, oh gosh, I remember one year she got her teeth. She got some dentures, and she got some glasses, and then my aunt gave her a car, and she said it had been the best year that she had ever had. So she called me one night, and she was having stomach pains. I took her to the hospital. I got her down there real quickly, um, and they put her in the emergency room. She was there for about three days. I kept visiting her on a consistent basis, but she was still experiencing pain. One day, about 11 o'clock, I called the doctor up, and I said, listen, she's still experiencing pain. You really need to come do something for her. About 12 o'clock, she called me into the room. She said she put her hands out. And uh, um, all of a sudden, her little eyes rolled up into the back of her head. I had never seen anything like that. I immediately knew something was wrong. All of a sudden, then I went and then I went to go get the um, I went to get the, um, um, the the nurses. They hit this thing called um, blue. What do you call it? A, a blue code or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I I'd heard about it before, but I'd never seen it. About 15 medical personnel ran to that room real quickly, and uh, my wife, my the my my girlfriend at the time, my wife now. Uh, this was in the year 2000, by the way, uh, October 5th of 2000. I'll never forget that day, and. Uh, Oh, in fact, what are we on right now? We're on, on the October fourth. Yeah. yeah. So I'll be Amara. Um, my my girlfriend called me and she said, "I think I found somebody to help your mom." And I was sitting there right outside the room. I said, "It's too late. I'm watching her die right now." She rushed down there, but it was too late. And we had the funeral. And I can tell you that at the funeral, I gave the eulogy. Um, there was a lot of things going through my head, and I had grief like I, I, I cannot even explain the type of grief that I had for three or four days prior to that. But one thing I did not have is regret. Because mm-hmm. of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd been able to make my amends. I'd been able to make things whole. I'd been able to tell her that I love her and that we were going to be okay. 
and uh, and it all worked out for the best. Now, that's just a small part of 30 years, right? I, I, I have so many more examples. I know you like people to go for about 20 minutes or so and then ask questions, and I've gone way over that, and uh, I apologize. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got lots of stories to tell. You've got 30 years to tell me about, so we, this might have to be a four-part episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I just I didn't know about your mom at all, and my heart just was in my throat as you were telling, talking about her at different stages. I mean, as a kid trying to understand a parent with mental illness, I mean, you know, that's your caregiver, that's your that's your number one person, and so I'm assuming you had to you had to grow up pretty quick because you didn't have someone you could count on in that way. And I did. And in that, fact, it's it's weird how that helps you later in life, you know, but yeah. you can't really see it at the time. It helps you if you heal it. But do you do you feel like that was really uh, contributed to your alcohol addiction, or do you think it was strictly biological, or like do you, I think of it as kind of a perfect storm, like biology meets conditioning meets right. opportunity? What what's your perspective on that? Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It was the perfect storm. Uh, You know, here's the thing. I I had a buddy of mine tell me this once. He says, you know, I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, but when I drank alcohol, an alcoholic was born. Um, So, uh, you know, there's the whole uh, environment versus, uh, you know, biology and, you know, which one causes alcoholism and, I don't really know, um, but I can tell you that uh, um, I'm sure that it helped me to progress uh, and helped me to uh, move further down that line of alcoholism. And uh, uh, for me, it was a way out time truly was a way out. It was a solution. And it worked for a long time until it didn't. Mhm. Mhm. Did you have a relationship with your dad at all, or when he and your mom split, yeah. was he just gone from your life? I did. No, he's still alive today. Uh, you know, we really didn't have much of a relationship growing up uh, uh, at all. I mean, you know, six through eighteen or whatever. So, you know, he went off and he he had a uh, uh, he got he was remarried, and then they had a son. Uh, and, you know, the tragic part of this is that son died at uh, 27 years old of alcoholism and drug addiction. His his major organs just all shut down. And, in fact, they used to say to him when he was younger, they'd say, why can't you be just like Johnny? That's what my family members called me. And uh, And that would make him terribly mad. Uh, and uh, and he was a dangerous kid, you know, both to himself and for other people. So, but to answer your question, so so that my stepmom, that wife, ended up dying. She died of drug addiction, actually. Uh, I mean, it was a back problem, but uh, it really turned out to be because of drug addiction and everything that goes around that, and not being able to operate, and uh, so his. His wife, his second wife, 
and uh, my half brother both died of this disease. And we have a we have a good relationship today. Uh, um, you know, and it's it's been. Uh, a, a positive thing and we see each other on a consistent basis and uh, I mean he's getting up there in years now you know and he's not going to be with me long but um, it took a while for that to come around as well quite honestly when I first got sober I was like oh my god I just realized I just got left you know and why did I get left you know why was I left and uh, why was I put in this situation and I went through all those questions that people go through especially when they're younger you know um uh, it didn't make sense to me, as you can imagine. I had some real anger about it. But uh, through the steps and through having conversations with my dad and being vulnerable about what was going on, I was kind of able to work through that situation. Did you um, ever try to help your stepbrother? Did you get involved with him at all, or was that an opportunity that was available to you? I did, and by the way, and I don't know what the difference, I mean, I know what the difference is. He was a half-brother, but I did get involved with him, and I offered. uh, They wanted him to come move. They wanted him at one point to come live with me, but uh, he was just too wild at the time. I wouldn't go for that. But, yeah, um, I offered to take him to meetings. I offered to help, uh, you know. um, he would come visit me every once in a while, um, and uh, I mean, he knew all about it. I mean, he had been to treatment several times, and so he was aware of it. He knew I was there to help him, but like I said, why did God pick me up by the scruff of the neck and help me uh, and not my half-brother? Don't know. Uh, it's still a mystery to me how these things occur in life. It is mysterious, and it's complicated. I feel like um, I, I'm assuming that over the decades in your program, you've helped hundreds or more, <laughs> maybe thousands, of people find their way to being free of alcohol. And yet, it must, it's complicated when it's a family member, isn't it? It is. It's much more complicated when it is a family member. And you're right. Uh, I mean, you know, here's the deal. I'm still very active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, I went to a meeting at noon today. I usually go to about five to six meetings a week right in that area. As you know, uh, you know, I started a podcast uh, just like you have, you know, and so I'm still very involved with it. Uh, I do sponsor many guys. I mean, I'm sure there's people who sponsor more than me, but, you know, I sponsor a lot of guys and I've had a lot of conversations. But when it comes to a family member, uh, it is a – basically, you have to give them back to Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon or whatever the case may be and and uh, hope that they get their – they reach that turning point, if you will, and mm-hmm. they, can, they can head in another direction, and somehow they see the light at the end of the tunnel for themselves because even though you have experienced it – um, they got to find that life for themselves. I was so lost in your story that I almost went the whole hour without talking about your podcast. So let's oh, talk about okay. that. <laughs> so oh, that's okay. .com. Yeah. And mm-hmm. tell me why you started it. How did it come to pass? 
Yeah, I can tell you exactly why I started. By the way, you know, the, I told you that, and the 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 other part of the story is I talked about my mom a lot, but, you know, I told you about that girlfriend who I was dating at the time. Well, um, by the way, my wife is sober and Alcoholics Anonymous for 24 years, I believe, right in that area. Uh, and uh, she... We were, we were dating at that time, and we ended up getting married. And, you know, I was never, ever thinking, Gene. It was so far down my radar about having kids. And, you know, I had not had a good experience growing up. And I didn't, you know, it was not like I saw something and I went, wow, I want to have that someday. Uh, so because of that, um, my wife, we were dating, and uh, she said, listen, um, if you're going to continue to date me and we're going to move on and on here, uh, I, I want to know that you want to get married and I want to know that you want to have at least one kid. I'm like, hey, 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 we're having fun here, you know. <laughs> Why ruin a good thing, you know, how those women folk are. And uh, so we, we went some counseling and, you know, finally uh, I said, you know what, I, I don't want to lose her. And, you know, maybe having a kid will be all right. And, you know, it's interesting. And as, as soon as my daughter was born, I thought, why did I wait so long? This is absolutely <laughs> incredible. Uh, and so now I have two kids. One of them's 15 and one of them's 12. And uh, they're they're the joy of my life. I mean, you know, I just everything I do is revolved around them. And you know, when you think about it, from where I came, you know, um, and to have this beautiful people tell me all the time, you just have a beautiful family. And 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 I, and I think they mean that from uh, uh, you know just. Uh, 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 just a, a good core value type of family. Now, it doesn't mean they don't have their challenges, and we're not perfect parents, and they're not perfect kids, and we all get grumpy and things of that nature, but I tell you what, there's nothing weird, so to speak, going on in the house, right? We've given them a safe place to flourish and to make mistakes and to do the things they have to do. I know they're going to have their problems. I just don't want them to have my problems. So, but I, the reason I the reason I went on that story is because I was about to talk about my wife. My wife and I were at a Christmas party last year, and uh, we started talking. It was a it was a recovery. It was an AA Christmas party. I think they call them holiday parties nowadays. Whatever. So it was a holiday party. It was in December, and. Um, um, we started talking to a guy that we know there. His name is his name is Alex, and Alex um, Alex is one of these guys that always sits in the back of the room. His name is Alex Z. He sits in the back of the room and he never says when he gets called on he passes, and and even when he talks it's in really short snippets. And so we started talking to Alex. Alex is from Iran. And I asked him about his story, and he went into this, like, it could have been a movie type of story. I, like, he he was back in Iran 
when the Shah of Iran and all the the you know American hostages were taking place and how he had to escape the country well he didn't his dad smuggled them out of the country it was kind of like a big ruse and they got them into Germany and then when he got to Germany how how he got from Germany to the United States and it was like and about how he read the uh, big book and we called it the Persian version big book right it's written in uh, Farsi and uh, and so he just it was an incredible story and I go oh my goodness how how can we get this out to him out to the the public and like all of a sudden one night I just couldn't get to sleep thinking about how I could do this and all of a sudden the word like podcast came to my brain and and I thought podcast I know nothing about podcasts why I know nothing <laughs> about interviewing this is no no this, this and it wouldn't leave me alone it just it just kept creeping back up and creeping back up and I I asked my wife I said listen I I, I may try to do a one podcast with Alex or would you if I do can you create a website my wife is technically pretty savvy in that way she helped me make the uh the website and so Anyway, I just started like researching, and as you know, this is not as easy as it looks, right? You just don't sit down. Anyway, there's there's a lot that goes into it, and uh, uh, and and so uh, so I just started on that journey, and then I got one, and then I got two, and then I got three. I go, well, maybe I'll, you know, I'll just have a few of my friends over and just see how it goes. And uh, I started doing this with some of my friends. You know, I know a lot of people in sobriety. I've known them for years, and um, and it just kind of took off from there. And I just haven't quit. And now we have about. I think I've got 42 or so episodes published and about three in the can, if you will. And uh, um, so far, so good. I'm just taking it a day at a time. And uh, I, just the the amount of people that actually download these episodes in all the corners of the world is just incredible. I, I never really expected this at all. Isn't that amazing? I, it, it blows yeah. my mind, too. Uh to to look at the stats and to see the you know sometimes you can download a map that shows little dots from where where right. countries I mean we can't find your house people don't worry we're not right, right. <laughs> we don't have a drone over you while you listen yeah. to us or anything but right. you can we still little, see like a little, little map drone and, like hovering over your front porch <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing though that is so cool and what's how has it changed you what what effect has it had on you. Because this is a new yeah, thing. You've been in you've been in the same program for a long time, a good program, and we are always changing as we go. But this is this is something new that you added fairly recently. How how has it, it affected your recovery? Yeah, I started in it was actually the end of December, but I just basically said in January. I think I got one recorded at the end of December, just kind of playing around, and then I got I really started in January, and so it has, you know, it, it actually. You know, I've been to so many meetings, right, thousands and thousands of meetings, and, and I enjoy them. But it gave me a new little spark, if you will, a new way of looking at the program, a new way of getting – you know, I always say right at the beginning of my uh, my podcast is that – this is different for me, right? I'm doing all the talking, but generally speaking, I'm saying my uh, my job is simple. 
It is to provide a platform for the amazing stories of recovery all around us, much like Alex. And it has helped me to become more involved in AA. Uh, It is, uh, you know, you think about all the people, just like you, Gene, right? The people who, in my case, most of them are sitting across from me or they're on the phone or on Zoom or whatever the case may be. But the people that I have built relationships with that I would not have otherwise either have met uh, or possibly not, you know, I sit across from people that I've known for years and years doing this podcast, and I'll find out from the things about them on the podcast all the time. I'm like, right. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and here I am. It took you to come over to my house to do a podcast in order to get this all figured out. So, but, so that's, it's, it's really changed me. It's helped me to kind of double down on getting involved. In another way, it's kind of like a service work that is, you know, we n- neither of us could have done this 10 years, well, maybe 10 years ago, but, I mean, this is fairly a new phenomenon, right? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how Internet and social media, and, and for me personally, Gene, you know, I have to figure out how I'm going to navigate the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous at the same time uh, and, you know, how to how to make all that right. And so it's just been... It, it's been an incredible journey, really, to tell you the truth. And what you're referring to there is the tradition of anonymity and the importance. Just for, we have lots of listeners that aren't involved in 12 step or aren't right. familiar with it. So to talk a little bit about that. Why does that? Right. Why does that become tricky in this arena? Right. Well, it becomes tricky because there is a there is a portion of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a tradition in Alcoholics Anonymous of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all of our traditions. In anonymity, it talks about really anonymity, Gene, at the level of press, radio, and films. Now. When Bill and Bob and all of the people in AA back in the 1950s wrote the traditions, they didn't, I mean, who knew that there was going to be the Internet and social media and, and all this sort of stuff? So the general service offices have to come up with some guidelines that they have put into effect after that. So for me, I can break my anonymity uh, to anyone, any anytime, anywhere I want, as long as I am not at the level of press, radio, and films, and and or the internet, because this is basically like uh, internet uh, internet radio, radio internet, however you want to say that. And so that's why I introduce myself as John M. Uh, when I do a podcast, uh, the people that come on my podcast, I tell them just your first name and your last initial only, if you want. Uh, but, oh, gosh, there, there's so much that goes behind the anonymity tradition. I mean, I can get into some details for about that if you want me to. Uh, do you want me to kind of go on a little further about that? Just tell me the benefits. T- talk about the benefit because okay. I think there's confusion about that, and I'll interject real quick. So, so just, you know, by contrast, I am out, I'm using air quotes, I'm out um, as a sober person, but I'm not in a 12-step program. And usually the the connection isn't that you can never be in a movie and use your full name. It's that when you're talking about your sobriety in relation to your That's program, 
right? So mm-hmm. let's talk about that and why that's yeah. important and how that helps. Sure. Well, the reason, it, number one, it, it is, uh, um, so what happened, the reason this came about years and years ago is because they had people that were celebrities back in the 50s and the 60s who were coming out and saying, hey, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, right, and kind of beating their chest a little bit about it and being a little bit too proud about it. And then what would happen is those celebrities would get drunk. And so people uh, would look at those celebrities and say, hey, Alcoholics Anonymous does not work, right? And so – um, what we, so it's not like we live in a, a, a like some sort of secret society, right? And 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 we and I do use my I use my last name when I introduce myself actually at meetings or mm-hmm. if I'm out actually doing a talk. But at that point, I'm not at the level of press, radio, films, or the internet. So it is a it's a protection for for members of AA, uh, and also it is because we want to have a good relationship with. The press, if you will. Uh, in other words, you know, we we just tell them we don't we don't want to be celebrities in AA. You know, we 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 just want to be you know kind of regular, average Joe type of people. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't want to get the message out, but we don't want to you know be plastered all over the paper as saying this is John. He's an Alcoholics Anonymous. This is his last name. Mm-hmm. And that also helps protect the other people in your program That's as correct. well, too, right? Yeah. So, yeah, um, very because good Because you don't want people so, to be um, outed by association. That's correct. So if if I were to see Gene in a meeting, especially for the first time or, or, or just in general, right, I can come out and say that I'm an alcoholic to other people uh, that I want to in my neighborhood, but I cannot and will not tell them, I saw Gene in the program today because it's a because there's the the spiritual anonymity issue and so that is to protect them as well. Very very good point. I forgot that. Okay, I want to ask you something else. Um, okay. We're running out of time, so now I'm watching the clock countdown and race <laughs> through my questions. But one leads to the other, of course. So some of our listeners who are thinking, who are. One of the objections I hear from people who are scared to go to an AA meeting is that they're like, "Oh, I live in a small town and people know who I am, and you know, I don't want, I I don't want to go because everyone will know." And I tell them, "Listen, other people are there for the same reason. Right? Why are they there? They're not going to be titillated that you're there. They're going to be glad to help you. So, can you just talk about that a little bit about?" newcomers and the, what, what what do people find when they come to a meeting, even if they know somebody there? What's that like? Yeah, tr- so and, and we, we get that all the time. And just about every, I mean, you hear all the time people, well, I circled the parking lot ten times three weeks in a row trying to see if there was anybody I knew coming in there, right? So, I mean, that's a very consistent story. Uh, and, and and like you said earlier, you got to think about um, – why are they there, you know, uh, and and for the most part, what you find is that people are very, it's not 100%, I mean, human beings are human beings, but they are very um, respectful of the tradition of anonymity, and uh, I, I would just say, just push past that fear, um, I, I hear it all the time, uh, and most people, uh, in the end, just you know, they end up laughing at themselves for thinking that way. 
Mm-hmm. It really is a spirit of um, welcome and and joy in a lot of ways, isn't it? Like I'm, I'm just so happy for people when they make a change in their life or when they're, I don't know, when they're re- when they're at that pivotal moment. So I wouldn't think, ha ha, someone walked in the room. I think, oh, I'm glad you're here. You know, great. We we can share this and and help each other and. Yeah, it's really positive. That's well, right. I always tell has... people, we love you here and we need you here. Come on back. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, I'm just so glad that we had the chance to chat because our pathways are very different, and yet our recovery is very similar. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, all of us know that brokenness inside or that feeling of helplessness, and, and we all have things in our lives that have broken our hearts and that we've had to overcome. And um, so I heard a lot of myself in your story, even though I was really interested in all the differences in how we've recovered. I, uh, I'm i really grateful that you were here and that you were so open and allowed us to learn from you today. So thank you very much. Thanks for letting me interject a little testosterone into the bubble. <laughs> how can our listeners find your podcast? Just go to www.soberspeak, S-O-B-E-R-S-P-E-A-K.com. All right. That's great. And I have to tell you, you were teasing me earlier about my Canadian accent, what I said posted. I'm going to post the show later. Uh, I hear Texas when you say www, so <laughs> we're even. Touche. <laughs> that's right. Did I say y'all at all during this No, thing? I didn't get any y'alls out of you, but okay, we, we, well. could, we could hear the Texas, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thank you so much. And listeners, if you want to reach John, you can. Can they reach you through your website as well? Can they send a message yeah. through the podcast site? Can, I'm sorry, did you ask if they can reach me through the website? Is that what you said? Yeah, through your podcast site. Are yeah. they able to send messages? That. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a feedback at sober.com, and uh, they can sure they definitely can send a message through there. There's even a way to leave a uh, if you go there and you click on the contact us tab, there is a uh, little um, voice. You'll see a little speaker that says leave a message. They can even leave a, a, a message, and we could play it on the air if you like. Oh, that's cool. I need that on my show. I like that. I like that a lot. So, listeners, if you would like to track down John and express your gratitude to him or listen to his podcast, uh, that is SoberSpeak.com. And you can also email me, TheBubbleHour, at gmail.com, and I will forward your messages on to John if you wish. And I guess that's it for us this week. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And until next time, take good care. I did that, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free From power, weakness head on me In a dark corner is where
I'm not afraid. 